Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Dan Kilbride. I am the chair of the history department at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm also the host of New Books in American Studies. Every week or so, we find a book in American Studies that's history, literature, or in this case, public health, and we sit down and talk to the author. We are joined today by Marion Moser-Jones, who is assistant professor of family science at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. Uh, Marion Jones, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thank you, Daniel. I'm glad to be here. So this book, which I should say is uh, published in 2013 by the Johns Hopkins University Press, seeks to uh, link the American Red Cross in general, and Clara Barton in particular, to the history of humanitarianism, uh, to expand the International Red Cross and the American Red Cross uh, you know, beyond an organization dedicated to assisting soldiers in wartime, which is its early 19th century history, uh, to humanitarian concerns like floods, epidemics, riots, etc., more broadly. Uh, I guess it's a slight exaggeration to say that this book makes a case for Clara Barton as the parent, uh, so to speak, of our modern concept of humanitarian intervention. So it's not a this is not a comprehensive history of the American Red Cross, but it's an analysis of its roots and growth in humanitarian relief. So, uh, Marion, why don't you tell us about yourself and tell us how you got to the process of writing this book? Um, sure. Um, so, I was. This book is based on my dissertation, as many first books are. Um, I was a graduate student at Columbia University in New York at the Mailman School of Public Health, but I was also uh, doing a joint program with the history department. And um, I became interested in the Red Cross because I had uh, been about five blocks away from the World Trade Center on on September 11, 2001. Oh, wow. um, and... The Red Cross was there after, um, you know, in the, almost immediately, um, along with all of these policing agencies and the National Guard. And so, whereas you'd expect the NYPD and the FBI and, uh, you know, the National Guard to be there in a, after such a major terrorist incident, um, why, why is it that there's this voluntary body that's also working? I mean, it's not a government agency. Um, right. And it tapped into the larger question of sort of why do we in the U.S. entrust to the voluntary sector um, really important functions? Um, it's sort of a version of you know, the AIDS activist Larry Kramer's um, question, why do we hold bake sales for AIDS? Um, I mean, he, he was very, you know, being a provocateur and he was uh, very angry at, uh, about this fact that the government isn't responding to the AIDS or wasn't in the eighties responding to the AIDS epidemic. Um, 
but I think there's a it, you could take that um, question and turn it around and make it more about a his, more a historical query an historical research question. Um, why is it that the voluntary sector, that this one organization, the American Red Cross in particular, um, is here at this time of national crisis? Um, and so I started looking into it. I, I had a paper to do for um, historian David Rosner's uh, History of Public Health course. And I was actually, I started looking into the history of shell shock and sort of PTSD and found that... Hmm. Um, in World War One, there were some interesting ways that the U.S. Uh, military triage shell shock. But in looking at that that uh, part of American military history, I found that the American Red Cross had played a major role in World War One um, in uh, serving medical and public health functions during this era. Um, in fact, there were 30 million Americans involved in some way in the American Red Cross during World War One and immediately after. Wow, that's a decent chunk of the population yeah, in 1914, 1918. Yeah, it's a, it's a third of the, the whole population. And wow. there were children involved. I mean, there were 11 million children, uh, school children involved in the Junior Red Cross. Um, and you consider, I mean, we had only 2 million soldiers going abroad. So, mm -hmm. And we had, and I found out that we had... Um, tens of thousands of Red Cross, American Red Cross workers going abroad in World War One to um, to serve in humanitarian functions and also to aid the uh, military. <clears throat> we had, um, there was um, sort of an, a pre-existing agreement between the Red Cross and the um, Army Nurse Corps. And the Army Nurse Corps was this tiny shell of an agency and uh, basically, or not agency, but organization. And um, the Red Cross supplied the nurses and they supplied and trained and screened the nurses. And then they would turn them over to the Army Nurse Corps or there were actual Red Cross units that would ser serve the military. So I thought, again, this raises that question or even underlines that question of why is it that this voluntary organization is serving an essential military function, and at the time of World War One, you know, in the, the project of making the world safe for democracy uh, that Wilson had advanced or tried to advance, you know, that they were serving this vital humanitarian function. Mm -hmm. um, so that that piqued my interest. Um, I found that there had been work, uh, some work on World War One and the Red Cross societies um, such as John Hutchison's Champions of Charity. Um, I mean, since then, uh, a, a very, a really brilliant young historian, Julia Irwin, has written a book just about that, the American Red Cross going, you know, its activities during and around World War One. But what I found in, in doing my, you know, historiography of, of Red Cross movements was that there was this major gap and that since 1950, nobody had really written about the American Red Cross and its history and, and that it had a really, uh, had played a really important role in the response to disasters at home as well as humanitarian crises abroad. Um, and so I started to, to look at this and to really 
uh, interrogate this and, and, and try to answer this question. Why was it that the American Red Cross played um, and still, I would arguably say, still plays a very mm-hmm. important role in, um, in American humanitarianism? Right. One of the controversies in the humanitarian movement among humanitarian organizations like NGOs centers on an idea that is very important to the Red Cross, uh, and that is that to be effective, humanitarian organizations need to be neutral mm-hmm. in, in a conflict. What did your research uh, in the American Red Cross teach you about that debate, and how did, how did it inform you know, your views on the subject of the need to be neutral? Well, it it really um, highlighted the fact that, you know, at times neutrality stands in direct conflict with effective humane engagement. Um, and sometimes neutrality is a tool that can enable a party or a, the Red Cross in this particular uh, case to gain access. But it's sort of sometimes it's a cloak. By which, under which they uh, can operate, that sort of protects them um, in very controversial situations. But other times, I think it's just not possible. Um, and this is interesting because, I mean, this is a current issue right now, this week, as we speak. Um, the World Food Program in in the UN, in the UN World Food Program, is in Syria and. You know, there are 100,000 displaced Syrians in Jordan, which is a lot for a small country. Mm-hmm. Um, there are estimated at least a half a million people in dire need of food and basic, uh, you know, medical and basic needs. Um, and the World Food Program, uh, according to recent interviews on NPR and recent, um, you know, press releases they put out, uh, is is competing in some places with Islamist organizations. And... The World Food Program distributes its aid based on need alone and not based on whether you're a rebel or or affiliate of the Assad regime. Right, right. And and the Islamists are, of course, trying to win over, um, in the words of one of the World Food Program officials, win over the hearts and minds of the Syrian people. Um, And so, you know, they're not neutral. Um, so, So this is a very current issue. And, and of course, with the U.S. government in Afghanistan, uh, the U.S. has sought to try and uh, maintain the allegiance of the Afghan people by providing everything from educational to, you know, actual food assistance um, to to Afghan people. So, and that's certainly not neutral either. Um, but what I found is that there were times when with the Red Cross, for example, they went to Armenia in 1896, and Armenia um, now is part of Turkey. Um, there was ethnic conflict there. Um, there were massacres of Armenian people and villages. This is sort of the prelude to the Armenian genocide of 1915, mm-hmm. and um, this was a very, uh, you know, a very contested event, a very difficult <laughs> Uh, situation because um, the uh, Armenians were Christians and American Christians believe were hearing about this because they had missionaries over in Armenia and there were British missionaries and they were on the side of the Armenians and they wanted to get the Armenians assistance as soon as possible um, as much as possible but they saw the Turks who were Muslim as the enemy 
and Islam as the enemy, basically. Um, but of course, they sending aid to their missionaries or sending more missionaries over at this time of intense ethnic conflict uh, was often not possible. I mean, the missionaries themselves, in some cases, had 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 their homes attacked and things like that. So, the American Red Cross is starts to be seen as this vehicle by which American assistance to the Armenians um, can be effectively. Um, you know, delivered. And, um, but the problem is the uh, Christians in the U.S. don't understand or maybe don't agree with this idea of neutrality. And in order to deliver this assistance, Clara Barton and her group of, of uh, uh, assistants, some of whom are doctors, have to basically work with the Turkish government and um, basically not take a stance on this on what's happened and who's caused what has happened to say, okay, mm -hmm. these, these, you know, some massacres occurred, people were removed from their land or, or had their, you know, farming implements destroyed. Um, and we're not saying who is involved. We're not getting involved in that. We're going to work with the Turkish government and in fact, accept um, escorts, guards from the Turks. So there they said, we're neutral in this conflict. The American Christian groups supporting the Armenians, including Armenians in exile, uh, got very mad at the Red Cross and said, you know, you are becoming a tool of the Turkish, the Ottomans. Um, and one might argue that, well, they, they could have <laughs> been a tool of the, I mean, you know, the Turk, the, this allowed the Sultan to say, listen, we're trying to help these people. Um, and to blame it on, you know, bands of Kurds and um, Circassians, you know, sort of these wild uh, rogue factions, <laughs> you know. So here it is, the, U the Red Cross neutrality is used in an effective way to get access, right? Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, is it really neutrality or are they taking the side, you know, of the Turkish government? So, um I think that was a really early example, and it really shows how little has changed. I mean, yes, things are, you know, the military conflicts are slightly different uh, right now, but um, the underlying issues, I think, are very similar in that if you're a humanitarian organization, you know, do you have, you have to sometimes have to work with partners whom you don't you know, with whom you don't agree, right? Who might even be partly responsible for some uh, of the, you know, suffering that you're trying to relieve. Um, um, so there, there's that ongoing issue, and I think it's an ongoing dilemma. And I think neutrality, from what I've learned, is an ideal that's actually very useful, but it's not necessarily in in his historically. Um, Neutrality in action has been much more of um, sort of, I would say, you know, an instrumental, um, you know, an instrument of yeah. humanitarianism. Right. Uh, that's not, you know, to be honest, uh, is not always, you know, does not always meet up, uh, match up to the ideal. In fact, very, very rarely matches up to that ideal. Right. Uh, you know, the first part of this book uh, talks about you know, somebody you've already mentioned, Clara Barton, and apparently Clara Barton's spirit had something to do with uh, giving you access to materials that <laughs> were not always uh, 
accessible to historians. Um, so tell us about Clara Barton. How and why did Clara Barton found the American Red Cross? Um, yeah, it's, it, I felt, I mean, I would say that, uh, you know, Clara Barton's spirit, there, there's a story about a, um, a carpenter in the General Services Administration who felt like he was tapped on the shoulder and then he suddenly discovered this cache of papers, and it was Clara Barton's missing soldier's office, which she used uh, at the end of the Civil War. And there's also a story of Clara Barton's assistant who, um, you know, <laughs> he, he worked with this medium who told him basically, turn over all of Clara Barton's assets to me, and he believed the medium. Um, so in those— Why not? Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> luckily um, he, he got to keep um, her assets, but— um, but I really seriously felt Clara Barton's spirit in that, in, in the way we all feel sort of the spirits of people who've come before us through paintings or literature, um, in reading her diaries and also her, her handwritten letters that uh, were in the National Archives. And this, and, and really, I mean, I had intended for the book to be more a little bit of a dispassionate analysis of the American Red Cross as a public health organization. Mm -hmm. And when I opened that first box of uh, archival material, I came upon these handwritten letters by Clara Barton. And the more I read, the more she came to life. And um, the more I saw this, this organization as the brainchild of Clara Barton. Um, so who was Clara Barton? Well, um, it's funny because she's one of those people who hides, whose true, uh, you know, biography hides behind her fame. Um, you know, there's a rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike named after her. There are many, many elementary schools named after her. Um, but and what did she do? Well, she was uh, um, the, one of the first female U.S. patent clerks. And when the Civil War broke out, along with many other people in Washington, she went to help the soldiers who were encamped around this capital city um, to provide them with basic provisions. Some of them needed uniforms. Some of them needed, um, you know, equipment. Um, they were poorly supplied. They had been hastily called up in April <laughs> 1861, right? Um, and some of them had been deprived of all of their possessions in the, in the Baltimore riot um, as they came uh, to Washington, um, and so and some of them came from from central Massachusetts, which is where Claire Barton was from and where she taught school. And she actually, mm -hmm. I mean, this was a small enough country back then that she actually knew some of them, or they knew she knew their families. So she became intensely involved in aiding the the Union soldiers primarily uh, during the Civil War and. She distinguished herself in two ways. Um, one, by going out on the battlefield and taking risks that not all of the freelance aid workers were willing to take. And two, by talking about it and telling stories about it later. Um, and this, this latter part of uh, Barton's um, Civil War career uh, really took place after the Civil War. From 1866 to 1868, she went on a speaking, a lecture tour. And I think 19th century historians uh, among your audience will know that, you know, that the lecture tour was the way that celebrity was created uh, or 
you know, furthered <laughs> in, yep. at this yeah, at this time. I mean, this is partly how Mark Twain, you know, Mark Twain was one of the mm -hmm. the leading, if you call 19th century celebrities. And Claire Barton had a ready audience of all of these Union veterans who uh, loved to hear this uh, attractive, uh, very um, captivating speaker um, speak with a, a lot of sympathy for them. And I think t to portray the Civil War a in a very, uh, as a very human event, because she wasn't concerned with the you know, battlefield uh, maneuvers. She was concerned with the men as suffering human beings and, um, you know, fathers, brothers, cousins. Uh, and I think that that offered a unique perspective. And so she became famous from this. Um, and then uh, during one of her speeches, she lost her voice and suffered what she called a nervous collapse and ended up being um, told by her doctor that she needed to go to Switzerland to recover. <laughs> yeah, I know. We'd all like <laughs> that prescription, right? Um, and then um, she went to Switzerland, uh, obeyed her doctor, and there she met the uh, Geneva businessmen and and. and philanthropist who'd founded the International Red Cross um, in 1863, and uh, which is 150 years ago, um, and uh, had, had basically organized the first Geneva Conference, which took place in October 1863, and the Treaty of Geneva, which was in uh, uh, 1864, which was, as we know it, as the Geneva, the first Geneva Convention. So, um, Barton eventually became uh, involved in this Red Cross movement through these affiliations and through her work uh, in the Franco-Prussian War. Um, apparently, she couldn't just stay in her, uh, you know, relaxed or, or recovery room too long. <laughs> after she felt good enough after a, you know, year or so of rest in in, uh, in Switzerland and took off again to, you know, to the heat of battle and uh, and. That's where she pioneered civilian relief because the Red Cross movement, the, the founders of the Red Cross movement had really been focused on narrowly on providing these volunteer groups, these Red Cross groups that would help combatants, that would help wounded soldiers in the battlefields of Europe. And she uh, didn't, she wasn't able to gain access to the battlefields because she was an American. They didn't want her anywhere near them. And, mm -hmm. and probably because she was a woman, she ended up in Strasbourg, um, which was under siege by the, um, the Duke of Baden. And um, she ended up helping the women of Strasbourg um, in providing for their daily needs. So in distributing aid to people who needed, um, you know, basic food assistance and also running this clothing uh, store that where she employed local women and then in making the clothes and then sold the clothes as a way to uh, keep uh, to, to raise funds. And so this was this was where Barton pioneered this idea of really grassroots engagement of local women, especially engagement of local people in civilian humanitarian relief. And in this way, she expanded the mission of the Red Cross movement. And when she brought the Red Cross movement to the United States, 
Um, and this was, of course, in the postbellum era when we had a very little appetite for anything military, uh, except if it was in the West dealing with uh, the Indian nations. Um, but, you know, there was, there was no real drumbeat or support for organizing voluntary brigades that would go to the battlefield at the drop of a hat. She said, well, we're going to make our American Red Cross a little different. It's going to be, you know, in peacetime. Um, a way to provide civilians with assistance in what she called national calamities, you know, fires, floods, earthquakes, storms, or, you know, if there is uh, some kind of um, uh, other kind of calamity as well. Um, and in wartime, if we ever go to war again, because, you know, the U.S. is a, not a military power, we're never going to go to war again. But if we do, <laughs> the Red Cross will step in. That would never happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's amazing how different the thinking was than, than in the latter half of the 20th century. Um, but, yeah, so, so that's how she was able to, uh, what I say, uh, she was able to transplant and reinvent the, the Red Cross um, idea um, uh, in, you know, in the, the context of postbellum um, America and, and, and Gilded Age America um, as, as this um, national movement uh, for disaster relief. Now, uh, later on in the, the 19th century, uh, Clara Barton is... I don't know if pushed aside is an accurate term for this, but a woman named Mabel Boardman comes to dominate the American Red Cross. How did she do that, and how did Mabel Boardman reshape the American Red Cross? Uh, yes, yeah, so I would say, yes, Clara Barton was more than pushed aside. I mean, she was ousted from the American Red Cross um, at the ripe young age of 83. Um <laughs> No, and and considering back then that was that was quite elderly. Um, yeah, I mean, to be fair, Clara Barton in the years leading up to this ouster, which took place between 1900 and 1904, there was a a real um, a clash of factions within the American Red Cross leadership. There was the Barton faction led by her nephew and ultimate loyalist Stephen, and then the Boardman faction led by this young, um, well, youngish socialite Mabel Borden. <laughs> um, and, um, and basically, um, it was also a clash between um, sort of these, again, grass, you know, grassroots humanitarian entrepreneurs um, of this, of the postbellum and Gilded Age uh, eras, uh, and then, and progressives who really wanted to have the Red Cross run um, according to then current accounting principles um, and to be much more organized and to catch up with, with Red Cross societies in Europe and Japan, which had raised millions of dollars and, and were functioning at a, you know, at a much, um, maybe a higher level, which were much larger. Um, the thing about those Red Cross societies was they were essentially auxiliaries of their militaries. Um, and what happened during this process, during which Barton was repeatedly humiliated and they brought out her, <laughs> you know, her uh, 
disorganized accounts, you know, her <laughs> yes. hat boxes full of paper <laughs> scraps were brought into the Senate uh, hearing room. Um, you know, uh, what happened was basically, yes, eventually the progressives won and the Red Cross was reorganized. Um, Mabel Boardman, who again was, was the daughter of uh, a very successful uh, railroad lawyer and the granddaughter of a railroad uh, magnate um, and lived in Washington um, and became its de facto leader. And Boardman was a was a volunteer. She, um, you know, she was independently wealthy. She had not married. She was the one uh, child in a sort of average Victorian upper class family who took care of her parents and stayed home. And so really for her, this was an opportunity to do something else with her life besides stay, co stay home and take care of her elderly parents while her siblings went off and, uh, you know, got married and lived their lives. Um, but it was also um, a chance to reorient the organization ideologically. And she was well, she was a progressive. Um, she was more the upper class conservative type of progressive where mm -hmm. um, she really allied the Red Cross with the Rockefellers and Cleveland Dodge and um, uh, the Ru Russell Sage's uh, counselors. So wealthy New York um, uh, financiers and industrialists. And I mean, this was a smart move. The Red Cross then raised quite a bit of money and became very established. Um, at the same time, the Red Cross became very closely uh, intertwined with the U.S. government in that it um, would uh, ha have to deliver its annual reports to the War Department. Um, and sort of, and actually, its Mabel Boardman's offices were in the War Department. Um, so it became this quasi-governmental organization, uh, developed closer ties to the military, this relationship with the Army Nurse Corps, um, you know, and, and also became, to, you know, again, to be fair to Boardman, more professionalized and more capable of responding um, to multiple emergencies, to, you know, to do multiple things at once. Um, and not really be sort of the personal project of a single person, mm -hmm. a single humanitarian entrepreneur. Um, one of the things that the American Red Cross had to deal with in this transitional period uh, was the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Mm -hmm. How did dealing with that earthquake uh, lead to some changes in the American Red Cross? Right. So, so the San Francisco earthquake was really the first opportunity for this new Red Cross uh, to test its new methods. And um, the thing is, the, as I say in the book, the, um, the Red Cross, this new organization, had gotten rid of anyone who had any experience with disaster relief. So they had to quickly find people. And they found um, uh, Edward Devine, who was a social work pioneer, um, and Ernest Bicknell, who was uh, another social work um, leader in Chicago, um, Devine was in New York, and sent them off to basically um, uh, administer uh, the distribution of aid. And, and, and Teddy Roosevelt was also involved in, in championing the Red Cross. So 
uh, as president. So there was there were millions of dollars flowing into the Red Cross coffer coffers. Um, Divine and Bicknell worked with San Francisco business leaders, this this committee, and basically distributed aid to people over a period of of months and years. Um, the thing is, they so whereas Barton had run the Red Cross as this personal mission and had been very personalized and sometimes, if you talk about neutral, very uh, made very personal decisions in in who whom who deserved aid, her aid, who deserved aid, um, this group went to the opposite end and was highly impersonal and ran the operation like a business. Um, and this is something that I think has um, valuable lessons for, for current philanthropy and, and humanitarianism and is that Fundamentally, uh, you know, a, a humanitarian effort is not a business effort. The, the purpose is not to earn interest on your money and spend as little as possible, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, and give people loans and then get them to pay them back with interest, which is they did some of this. They they were very reluctant to spend all the money. Um, they give <clears throat> they gave people loans rather than um, outright gifts and people took them to court um, and said, you know, isn't this money given freely by the American people for our assistance and not, you know, some kind of business arrangement? And, and the people eventually, uh, the homeowners who were given these loans for these small homes um, after their homes had been destroyed, um, did win in that case. Um, so, it, you know, it was an example of what I think we see in the progressive era is sort of efficiency taken to an extreme where it actually ends up hurting the people it's designed to help in some ways. Mm. Um, at the same time, I mean, the Red Cross was able to operate on a much larger level to be really um, an equal partner with the U.S. military and the local business leaders um, and to um, aid uh, many of the four, you know, four hundred thousand people in San Francisco um, to to provide people with some aid. Um, so you know, it, it it was a lesson. Um, and actually, out of that experience, Ernest Bicknell, who became then the director of disaster relief at the Red Cross, um, formulated this policy of what he called need not loss. That in the earthquake, some people had been compensated for their loss, which meant that more successful business people, more affluent people had been given more money. Um, And really he decided that the Red Cross shouldn't operate like an insurance company. Um, And it shouldn't operate like a, you know, financial concern to the extent that there's so many accounting procedures that you, you can't even deliver aid effectively or efficiently Um, that people should be given, you know, basic assistance based on their needs so the people who are most in need should be given, you know, uh, prioritized. Um, now, the Red Cross didn't always do this, but um, this became the policy, at least, that they sought to follow, um, which meant that, you know, they were, they were trying to aid um, the people, you know, who, who were of more modest means um, mm-hmm. versus, you know, in San Francisco were, were the more well-off people, um, receive more aid. Right. 
Now, I guess the next crisis that the Red Cross encountered was the First World War. And as you've already mentioned uh, in our introduction, uh, World War I led to a massive uh, increase in the American Red Cross, especially in the number of volunteers. Mm-hmm. But you also talk about how World War I, especially once the United States entered World War I, uh, forced the American Red Cross really to confront its policy of neutrality. Mm-hmm. So what was the experience of the Red Cross during World War I? Right. So first, for the first couple of years of World War I, um, the Red Cross tried to be neutral. Um, initially, uh, there was a Red Cross hospital um, set up in Austria um, that the um, American Red Cross um, sent uh, aid to. Um, and when the American Red Cross raised funds to help the um, civilians affected by World War One, they were trying to um, aid people who were both on the side of the central po- powers and the allies. Um, however, they were first um, prevented by really getting too much aid to the central powers after um, the allies started to just blockade these ports. Um, and secondly, there were already dominant sympathies with the English and the French, especially among the American upper class, which, as we remember, you know, was was now very invested, um, or sections of it were very invested in this Red American Red Cross project. And of course, you know, upper class Americans had been going, making these transatlantic voyages to England and France, and were very familiar with these countries and their cultures. Um, I mean, some of them had gone to Germany too, but England and, and you know London and Paris were their preferred destinations. And so, sure. um, you know, there was obviously more um, sympathy among these people for uh, you know for raising money, more more impetus to raise money for the English and the French. Um, now, after the sinking of the Lusitania and you know, the, the beginning of the preparedness movement, I think the Red Cross began to reorient itself away from neutrality. Um, and really, by the time the war broke out, uh, I mean, the um, Americans entered the war, um, the Red Cross was not, you know, had not been getting much aid to the central powers anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but the um, entry of the U.S. into the war caused very dramatic and uh, sudden changes for the Red Cross. Um, Woodrow Wilson really uh, commandeered the Red Cross for the duration of our involvement in the war. Um, he, I mean, there was the Red Cross had a charter, a federal charter passed by Congress, and it said it was run by a governing central committee that was elected and um, uh, by Red Cross members. And um, Wilson said, well, for the duration of the war emergency, um, the Central Committee is not going to run the Red Cross. I'm going to appoint <laughs> a war council. And he appointed William Howard Taft, who'd been heavily involved in the American mm-hmm. Red Cross, and had been president. He appointed um, Henry Davison, um, a, a partner in a J.P. Morgan firm and a big Red Cross fundraiser, and a few other uh, financiers from New York and, and said, um, you're going to run the Red Cross and you're going. The reason that he had these financiers uh, in charge is because he realized the Red Cross would have to raise unprecedented sums of money. So, whereas it had been ra- able to raise, you know, a few million dollars, a lot of money 
for the San Francisco earthquake, it would need to raise hundreds of millions of dollars to support the U.S. Um, in the war effort. Um, and to do this, I mean, it couldn't be neutral. And so they, the War Council said, yeah, we're not going to be neutral for the duration of the war. <laughs> we're going to do patriotic humanitarianism. Um, however, while the, the American Red Cross did then supply the nurses for the military and did send, um, you know, a lot of aid uh, to the military, had canteens that would you know, provide refreshments to troops at the train stations where they were deploying, um, would visit the, the troops in camps. Um, the American Red Cross also continued this humanitarian mission to civilians. And many Red Cross nurses and um, social workers went over to Europe and were really uh, interested in the refugee populations and in mm -hmm. basic public health for um, you know, maternal and child health for uh, the French women uh, and children affected by the war. Um, and so in this way, it wasn't, it wasn't a total switch to just becoming an auxiliary of the U.S. military. Um, this civilian humanitarian mission um, persisted. And I think after, because our involvement in the war was so short, after the armistice, um, this humanitarianism became the predominant um, focus of the American Red Cross. Um, and this is something, again, as I said, Julie Irwin in her book does a good job of, of discussing this. Um, and um, this continued. And just like Woodrow Wilson, who wanted to sort of continue this effort to, you know, to improve the world uh, that he, you know, he saw our, our ostensible reason for getting into the war. You know, he wanted to continue it with the League of Nations and, and, and prevent any war in the future um, and promote public health and promote. Uh, development, or what would later be called development, the Red Cross wanted to continue with all of this humanitarian work for refugees, to educate them, to improve their public health, you know, to decrease infant mortality and improve nutrition and improve basic conditions for people in war-ravaged Europe. Um, but what happened is that once uh, the troops were coming home in 1919, um, the uh, American public was tired of giving all its money and, you know, <laughs> spending all of its time, uh, you know, aiding the Red Cross. And, you know, of course, there was the wartime post-war um, turmoil and then the return to normalcy, in, in, you know, with Harding mm -hmm. in the 20s. And uh, the Red Cross had its, you know, massive amount of, you know, all, all of this fundraising sort of shriveled and it had to, uh, you know, cut back dramatically. And really, um, just as Wilson didn't see his vision realized, the Red Cross also didn't see its humanitarian vision realized to the extent that, that some wanted. And it had to go back and focus, um, you know, by the mid-20s on disaster relief in the United States and certain programs, um, Two other countries, such as you know China, did some some famine relief in China, and um, you know uh, relief in the the Japanese earthquake of 1923, and um, mm -hmm. you know refocus its mission based on back to its uh, sort of pre-war mission. 
Yeah, one of the most interesting parts of this book for me, and I was trained as an American historian and especially an historian of the American South, was the sections of your book that deal with how the American Red Cross had to struggle with uh, racial dilemmas mm -hmm. in the United States. And you really see this in, in, in two places after World War One, And that, first of all, is the uh, early 20th century race riots in post-World War One United States, and also in the great Mississippi River flood of 1927. Yeah. How did the American Red Cross uh, confront issues of race and social control in the 20th century American South? Well, so the Red Cross, American Red Cross, had these two policies. It had neutrality, which it widely interpreted, not as you know just treating enemy combatants and U.S. soldiers with you know equally when they were wounded, but as what it would Barton characterizes neutrality with regard to race and sex and uh, nationality and religion. So it was sort of this proto version of what we call social justice. Um, that was its ideal that you you know it should not discriminate against. Uh, people or offer people different benefits based on their race, different disaster relief. Um, and it had another policy, especially after World War One, when it mushroomed and developed chapters, um, over 3,000 chapters across the U.S., of privileging local autonomy. So turning over the decision-making on a daily basis to local chapters. And so in the U.S. South, those were two conflicting um, policies because sure, sure yeah. <laughs> the locals, when it came to the Mississippi flood of 1927, we're talking about the locals in, you know, Vicksburg, Mississippi, in, in you know, uh, Blytheville, Arkansas. Uh, the Red Cross was one run by local white planters and merchants who did not regard African-Americans as <laughs> equal, uh, who regarded them essentially as labor, as inferior in every way. Um, and so what happened was the Red Cross did provide aid to African-Americans who were displaced by the flood. In fact, the majority, mm -hmm. because it was in the Mississippi Delta, the majority of people displaced by the flood were African-Americans. Um, but um, they left the running of these refugee camps, which were, they were, that's what they called them, or con they actually called them concentration camps. This is before, where it was before <laughs> World War II. So uh, they we don't use that term anymore. No, they, but you know, the, the, um, the concentration camps, they call, um, they, they left the running of these to the local authorities, which, um, who basically, uh, again, were, you know, in many localities, the local Red Cross uh, chapters were run by white planters who wanted uh, to, what they'd say, to retain their uh, black um, sharecropper uh, labor uh, in the South and who saw a valid threat because there were these uh, Red Cross boats and other rescue uh, boats that would you know, could maybe, uh, you know, be a vehicle by which people could escape, um, or perhaps if not, you know, if these local authorities didn't maintain tight control, 
someone could say, well, I lost my, you know, wife in the flood and I uh, lost everything. And I have a cousin up in Chicago. Can you give me a train ticket to Chicago? And, you know, and that was happening. There were people who were leaving, who were taking advantage mm -hmm. of the situation. And I mean, in the most positive way, um, where they were, you know, heavily indebted through these usurious, you know, interest rates on, on every, you know, all of their goods and services to these planters. And the flood had washed away the crops and washed away their cabins and who said, you know, I need a train ticket to Chicago. We're getting out of here or to, you know, to points north. Um, and so the planters then said, you know, we have to keep we have to keep our labor here because this this great migration had already started in World War One and had been actually continuing at a lower rate in the 1920s. And, um, you know, the planters were worried that everyone was going to leave. So they had local, you know, National Guard who I mean, it was state National Guard, but local people uh, basically policing the camps, um, tagging. The people, uh, the African American uh, sharecroppers who were there, tagging them with the owner of their uh, the plantation they worked on, and forcing them to stay. Mm. Um, so, uh, and also forcing black men at gunpoint to work on shoring up levees um, and um, basically doing this really dangerous work that led many of them to drown. Mm -hmm. um, now. Was the Red Cross responsible for this? Well, the, the National Red Cross leaders would argue that, you know, well, it was just these locals, these few, you know, incidents at Greenville, Mississippi and a couple right. other places. But in fact, they knew about it. They visited these um, encampments. Um, and it was only when um, national black leaders from uh, the NAACP to uh, local to uh, business, black businessmen in Memphis, to others who really pressured them to do something about this, that they said the conditions were just horrible, um, that then Hoover, Herbert Hoover, who was working with the Red Cross then, uh, appointed what he, they called a colored advisory commission that went around to different camps and uh, made reports and tried to suggest improvements, specific improvements. And um, while this was too little too late in this case, um, and also um, the commission was run by Robert Rosamoten, who is the head of Tuskegee Institute and um, was really the heir to Booker T. Washington. So he was not, he was a conservative um, black leader as opposed to mm -hmm. W.E.B. Du Bois, who would have, you know, made, in their view, probably made more trouble. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but even Moton made some comments and said, you know, this is the plantation, the, uh, fundamentally the system needs to be reformed. So he was not as much of an uh, assimilationist or, a, you know, sort of criticize, he was criticized as an Uncle Tom. He was not, I wouldn't say right. he was as much that as people said, that he was just trying to be realistic and advocate for people's basic needs. Um, in the short term, maybe this, this improved things a little but in the long term, this began a pattern of advocacy in the national African-American community um, in, in situations, in disasters in the South, um, and a, a relationship between 
uh, groups of African-American leaders and the American Red Cross that actually in the long run resulted in some improvements. So in the 1937 flood, 10 years later, mm-hmm. there was much greater engagement, sort of proactive engagement of black communities, uh, mainly in- initiated by them to make sure that people were not being treated as inhumanely or, you know, while there were still segregated camps, um, facilities, uh, for example, um, uh, black social workers and nurses were hired. Um, people were given adequate um, food and, and shelter and things like that. Um, and eventually, um, one of the commission members of this Colored Advisory Commission ended up succeeding in, in, in an effort to get the American Red Cross to appoint an African-American um, executive to its Mm. national headquarters. But that didn't occur until 1943. Oh, my. Uh, Yeah, and at that time, the Red Cross was um, uh, also engaging in its own, another different uh, racially discriminatory practice of segregating the blood supplies that it was sending over (laughs) to Europe. So that that was a whole other chapter. But I just want to emphasize that it it wasn't all just a story of... um, you know, white planners and black victims. It was a story of uh, both that, but also um, grassroots advocacy by the black community and national, on a national level, advocacy for the needs and and the rights of of African Americans affected by disasters. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's you know that's a, a historical lesson. Um, now the the race riots is a whole other story, um, and the American Red Cross just briefly, different chapters were involved in providing relief, you know, basic assistance to people who were burned out of their homes um, and injured in the race riots in East St. Louis, uh, Illinois, in Chicago, and in Tulsa. And and the Tulsa case, which I highlight in the book, was the one where. I think the the American Red Cross, a a particular American Red Cross worker, really did champion the needs, if not the rights, but the the needs of the black community in Tulsa for assistance. Um, And in that way, really stepped out of that policy or or it was an exception to that instant, the general policy of privileging local autonomy and that he didn't say, okay, it's up to the locals to deal with this. Goodbye, you know. Uh, the local Red Cross chapter can handle this. He stayed and he um, got the National Red Cross to funnel money to the people who were, you know, burned out of Greenwood, the black district of, of Tulsa. Um, and I think that there were two reasons for this exception. And one, it was because this was a Red Cross worker who was kind of, he, he was about to leave the Red Cross. Um, and, you know, it was like, like any employee about to leave an organization he didn't have a big stake in whether he'd be promoted or, you know, <laughs> what consequences would come. And secondly, because the, the race right in Tulsa was so egregious and the black community was, you know, the whole black district was burned down um, that, you know, it was such a clear case of inhumanity and, you know, people in dire need that um, I think both he and some officials at national headquarters saw it as a as as a clear cut case for um, 
American Red Cross assistance. Um, although, right. uh, although because they they spent all this money from national headquarters and didn't raise a lot of money um, in in the future, they basically changed the policy and said things are going to be we're not going to continue this. So this was yeah, this is one um, Red Cross worker, and he yeah, and he basically did what he thought was the right thing to do um, in staying in Tulsa. I mean, the he kept getting pressure from national headquarters to. Would they say close the operation, and he stayed through the end of the year? Um, now that said, um, it doesn't mean that the people who were uh, affected by the race riot, uh, especially the black community in Tulsa, had adequate assistance with rebuilding mm-hmm. their community. I mean, a lot of a lot of it was they did rebuild the burned out district, um, but a lot of it was. Uh, accomplished without the assistance of anyone else. Um, however, the Red Cross in this instance served, I think, as um, a valuable partner in these early days of, of mm-hmm. rebuilding. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because you can't say that the American Red Cross um, always acted in, in concert with you know, the interests of sort of the white supremacists who were um, mm-hmm. so uh, in, in dominant, you know, in evidence in the 1920s with the Klan marching, you know, of course, down Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, I don't think Red Cross leaders um, saw themselves as allied. In fact, I know they did not see themselves as allied with these groups. Um, and you can't, you can criticize them for being you know, for looking the other way or for approving in, in the 1927 flood, approving and rubber stamping um, the efforts of the local white planters. Um, but you can't say that that was always consistently followed because you have this example of the uh, Tulsa race riot. Right, right. So. Now, one thing that the Red Cross has had to deal with in the modern era, and I guess this actually goes back to the New Deal, which was uh, you know a much more aggressive federal and state role in disaster relief, beginning with the New Deal. Yes. Um, and as you write regarding the New Deal, uh, you know the more aggressive federal presence had the potential, at least, to marginalize the American Red Cross. But you know, as critics on the right have you know realized that you know the New Deal was not socialism; it, it was not you know, this big government takeover, and you know, for some people on the left, the New Deal was a disappointment mm-hmm. and that it failed to expand government to the extent they wanted. Uh, how has the American Red Cross since the New Deal accommodated itself to a much more aggressive federal presence uh, and state presence in disaster relief? Yeah. So as you say, I mean, the New Deal is, you know, does not did not um, live up to the left's expectations or or you know, did not realize the rights were spheres. And the, the FERA, which was, you know, Federal Emergency Relief Administration, um, the Red Cross initially feared that, you know, that name, Emergency Relief, would encompass all of its disaster relief activities. Um, but the Red Cross had established uh, over 60 years of practices, policies, relationships, and basically a huge institutional presence in infrastructure and, and an expertise about disaster relief that enabled it to basically um, come in at a time when the New Deal administration was not 
um, did not have the you know the state capacity during the New Deal was limited. Uh, the government capacity and the Red Cross swooped in with its expertise and worked as a partner with state governments and the federal government. Um, and so in that way, the, the Red Cross, by you know, being the established expert that the New Dealers who were you know, trying to basically build a federal government you know, from the ground up in some ways, I mean, there was some federal government, but um, mm-hmm. you know, could turn to. Um, and the Red Cross um, kept that foot in the door during the post-war era. Um, when um, really, when federal disaster relief became uh, codified in the 1950 Disaster Relief Act, um, which was, uh, you know, brainchild of President Truman's administration, um, this law actually had written into the law the American Red Cross um, was given was still given responsibility and and and. It was specified that governmental disaster relief would not interfere with the activities of the American Red Cross. And the American Red Cross was still expected to be the national agency for aid to individuals. So in the 1950s um, and 1960s, the federal government would provide aid to states and localities. That aid would be mainly focused on things uh, like you know, public infrastructure, uh, repairing roads, and, you know, if you, an electrical plant was destroyed or school buildings were destroyed, um, that would be where the aid went. But this, the aid to individual families uh, would, be fi- would be basically financed by the American Red Cross. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in, uh, it wasn't until 1969's Hurricane Camille and 1972's Hurricane Agnes that um, this policy came under fire, and it wasn't until really um, the 1974 uh, Disaster Relief Act that the um, federal government took over this aid to individuals and families. Um, and as we know, I mean, 74, that was the Disaster Relief Act. Five years later, President Carter created FEMA to essentially mm-hmm. to streamline disaster relief, make it all under one agency rather than a bunch of different agencies. Um, but as we know from, you know, the popular perceptions of FEMA that uh, the federal government, <laughs> I mean, and, and it, you know, like anything, I mean, it gets a bad rap. There are plenty of cases where FEMA was effective. Um, but, you know, the federal government has has not... Uh, assumed um, a role that excludes the voluntary sector. In fact, it still relies on the voluntary sector. Uh, What's happened is that voluntary sector has expanded in that the Red Cross is no longer the only uh, organization involved. There are evangelical organizations. There's a Salvation Army. Um, So in some ways, um, the voluntary sector is just as involved as it was uh, before and and without the voluntary sector, you know the the um, federal aid uh, would be insufficient. Um, and so so the debate over voluntary versus uh, government relief uh, continues. Okay, well, Marion, we have taken up an hour of your life, <laughs> so I think it's time to let you go. I have one more question. I know this is going to seem maybe a little perverse, given that you've 
you know, just published this book. Um, what's next for you? Um, sure. Thanks, Daniel, uh, for and your listeners um, for for being with me for this hour and a- asking me such great questions. So, what's next for me um, right now? I'm working on a project about um, the homeless crisis in the United States and the um, efforts to basically um, to end homelessness, um, the, the response, the institutional organizational response to homelessness um, in historical perspective. Um, so that's that will almost certainly be my next book. Um, right now, it's it's uh, I'm preparing a couple of articles about this this subject, um, and it relates to the first book because I mean homelessness. Um, is a you know it was a crisis in the 80s that affected families mm-hmm. and it's an ongoing crisis um, that affects families the same way a natural disaster might and you know they're both both projects are really about the institutional and organizational response to crisis that affects families and individuals and how in the United States do we respond to this and how do does our response structure, in fact, shape what happens in a mm. crisis and how the crisis unfolds? Um, well, that'll be wonderful. And I look forward to interviewing you about that in however many years. <laughs> um, so, again, thanks so much for talking to us. I'm glad you had the opportunity to do this. Thanks so much, Daniel. You bet. So we have been talking to Marion Moser-Jones about her book, The American Red Cross. From Clara Barton to the New Deal, published in 2013 by the Johns Hopkins University Press. Now, when you listen to this interview, you will see uh, on the webpage a link to the Amazon.com site for this. So we encourage you to send some money Marion Moser-Jones' way by uh, buying that. And a, a little bit of that funds also go to new, the, new books, uh, uh, the New Books Network, uh, which embraces a number of subjects. This is Dan Kilbride from New Books in American Studies. Thanks for listening, everybody.